Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. I want to do two things in this podcast in light of the absolute horrors that have beset our country in the last week or two. First, I want to talk to you from the words of Jesus, and second, I want to tell you what I've learned from some black D.C. detectives about the situations that have happened recently. First, the words of Jesus. I apologize to my listeners who are not Christians. I'm going to be quoting a bit from the New Testament. I'm very grateful for those of you who follow me, who are Jews, uh, who are Hindus, who are Muslims. I hear from you often. Very happy uh, that you are with us. Allow me, please, to speak to Christians because that's the majority of where the problem is, unfortunately, in this country. Um, It is interesting to me that the moment we have recorded in the New Testament— of Jesus being the most angry uh, and, and even to the point of violence is when he was clearing the temple. And most Christians miss the fact, misunderstand what Jesus was about because Jesus was not upset about business being done in the temple. That was not the issue. And I'll explain that in just a moment. What Jesus was upset about was the racism that was taking place at that moment. And so it's important for us to understand that the moment that Jesus was the most angry in all of the story that we have from him about him in the Gospels, it was about racism. Let me explain very briefly. Uh, In the temple, in the beautiful temple that Herod had built, the massive temple that even Jesus and his disciples admired, there was a large court called the Court of the Gentiles. And this was the only place that non-Jews, that Gentiles, that so-called outsiders could stand and pray, okay? It was called the Court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, these unclean ones, so to speak, these ones who were not Jews, could not go any further into the temple uh, without literally being put to death either by God or by the guards. So Jesus was walking through the Court of the Gentiles and noticed that a great deal of trade and exchange of money and buying and, buying and selling of sacrifice animals was taking place in that court. Now, I explained this in detail in my book, Killing Jesus, but very briefly, let me say that what had happened was a very legitimate business, in fact, a business that was required by God's commands in the Old Testament, uh, which was that that people's local money would be brought to the temple and be exchanged for the temple coin, and that's how tithes could be paid, or that people wouldn't have to carry, for example, a, a cow, you know, all the way from some remote country or doves or whatever, but they could come to the temple and buy those sacrifice animals. So there was a certain form of trade that was uh, commanded by God that was expected to be done around the temple grounds. Well, I won't get into the details right now, but this trade had become a bit corrupt. There was almost a Sopranos-like mafia thing among some of the uh, the ruling family of the priesthood. Um, and as a result, this trade had been expanded and expanded and expanded. And finally, it had grown uh, to the point where the corrupt some of the corrupt leaders put this trade into the temple courts. 
Uh, and of course, the, the temple courts they put that into was the court of the Gentiles. So to put it in brief, the only place the Gentiles had to pray was now occupied by this trade that had become so gigantic that it had to have somewhere to be. This meant that trade was taking place in the only place in the temple courts that the Gentiles had to pray. Now, Jesus sees this and he becomes furious and he starts flipping over the tables and he makes a cord or kind of a whip out of reeds, uh, long stemmed weeds, essentially begins whipping people, begins driving everybody out. And he says, uh, my, you have made my father's house uh, a den of thieves, but my father's house shall be a house of prayer. Now, we have that quote from him in one or more of the Gospels, but the rest of that verse that is, a, is quoted in some of the Gospels but is not quoted in all of the Gospels is, my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. So given the shortened verse, what we often think is, you have made my father's house a place of business or trade or a den of thieves. In other words, where people are handling unclean things like money and sales and so on, but it should be a house of prayer. Well, if we only quote it that way, if we only know that, if we think that's the end of the verse, then what we think is that Jesus is ticked off because people are doing business rather than praying. And that's not the main story. The main story is that Jesus is wanting these people to be out of the court of the Gentiles with their trade, again, for the most part, a legitimate trade that God had commanded, and let the Gentiles have their place of prayer. My father's house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. It's the for all nations that gets the emphasis because Jesus was furious that the Gentiles were being kept from praying. So what's the conclusion of this most important and startling story uh, in all of the, the life of Jesus that we have from the New Testament gospels? It is that Jesus was furious with the Jews, the chosen ones, his people. He was furious with them for engaging in racism, engaging in bigotry, keeping the Gentiles from their appointed place in the house of God. Now, it's interesting, you might want to know, that though we, though we tend to read this as, it, as though it happened only once, it's very likely that it happened twice. John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us, that it happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he first went to Jerusalem. But the other Gospels that mention it seem to indicate that he did it at the end of of his ministry when he was returning to Jerusalem um, during the beginning of his Passion Week. Well, it makes perfect sense to me that Jesus might do this at both the beginning and the end of his public ministry on the, the visit to Jerusalem that begins and ends uh, his public life, because this was one of his main themes. What was he? What was he coming to the earth to do? To die so that all men might have access to God. How symbolic and proper it would be for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and say, "Stop banning the the supposedly." Un washed ones. Stop banning those who are supposedly unclean. Give them the place in the father's house that the father ordained. Now, my reason for for, go, for risking sounding like I'm preaching, even though I, I am a teacher of scripture and so I have no hesitation about doing that, is that I want to make it very, very clear that racism, that hating people because of their color, that engaging in bigotry and bias against people because of their color is sin. Let me say this very clearly to all of you who name the name of Jesus, all of us, 
should know that this is not something we are allowed based on what part of the country we live in or whether somebody of another color than us uh, has uh, harmed us in some way or whether there's a certain culture that seems to be inferior and that culture is populated by people of a different skin color than ours. We do not have the right, biblically speaking, to engage in racism. Racism is sin. Let me make a second point. Racism is America's main sin, its first sin, and it is very likely kept us from much that God ordained. Uh, God intended the United States as a play, uh, not the United States, but but this new world. Let me say that since that's the phrase that would have been used at the beginning. God intended the new world to be a place of liberty, a place for the gospel to settle, uh, a place for uh, freedom to reign, uh, a place for equality. Uh, one of my favorite graphics uh, paintings from early American history uh, shows an altar in the wilderness and all the nations streaming to it, people in turbans, uh, black skin, every kind of person uh, streaming to it. That was the founding vision of this new world, a city upon a hill. Well, uh, instead, though, what did we do? Uh, rather than heading the way we could have headed, rather than uh, declaring that all men are created equal, rather than building a just society, a new thing in the world, novus ordo seculorum, uh, a new new order for the ages, we allowed slavery to entrench itself in our nation. And by the way, let's not play any games here. This was a sin of both North and South, and all, all of our history shows it. So uh, yes, we had to fight a civil war, but but you know I'm I'm only in my fifties, and some of the laws that were established to uh, guarantee voting rights and civil rights have been passed in my lifetime, meaning just in the last fifty years. It's atrocious that we're a country uh, that has existed over two hundred years, and we're just getting these things solved. So please understand that our original sin as a nation not speaking of individuals, but as a nation, is slavery and is racism and is the despising of people of color. And I understand there are more practical considerations that I'm describing, but I want to make it very, very clear because I believe that those of you who listen to my podcast are people who want to be informed. You're people who want to make a difference. And many of you are people who want to help heal this nation and do good things in the world. And so I want to make it very clear. Racism the bigotry that comes from hating people of a given color and treating and objectifying them is sin and it should be dealt with as sin. It should be repented of. It should be taught in churches as sin, and it should be um, rebuked. And second of all, it is our national sin. The third thing I want to say is that for a number of reasons that we can talk about another time, uh, our nation has uh, gone backwards here recently in its progress towards racial unity. I believe, as President Obama said just today, and it's one of the statements I really agree with of late, he's not been very strong, in my opinion, in leading during this season, but he did say that the majority of Americans are not racist, that we are much further along in racial progress than we think that many people say, and that good things can yet come even from this situation. I believe that. I believe that. And I'm glad that he said it. It's one of his few Churchillian moments of late. And I want to say that I think we can turn this thing. We can change this thing. um, And that we have definitely lost some ground here of late, but we can make it up. Now, having said that, let me say something that's going to be very, very surprising to many of you. And I'll take a few minutes extra to say it. When the shootings happened this past week, um, these horrible videos that you've seen, and of course, they are added to some of the horrible shootings we've seen in recent months and years, especially 
white cop shooting uh, young black people. It's a it's a it's a travesty. It's a plague on our times. Um, I called some of my D.C. detective friends. I happen to be in Nashville now. Bev and I, as many of you know, split our year between Nashville and D.C. And so I called some of my D.C. detective friends. Um, it just so happens that I have a lot of friends who are Secret Service and and D.C. detectives just because of where I go to church, just because of where I live. It's, it's not that I go cultivating those relationships, although I love all of these guys. And all the guys I called are black. So these are black professionals, high-ranking D.C. cops. Uh, DC detectives uh, and secret service. And I asked them to tell me straight up what they thought. Now you need to know that all of these guys not only are black, but they've all been victims of unnecessary uh, stops and so on. I mean, I've, I've had, I've sat and laughed with them in one case, for example, where a guy gets pulled over, basically he said I was driving while black, but then he pulls out a secret service badge and, and, basically shames the guy who had pulled him over uh, unnecessarily. Um, a, a black DC detective friend of mine told me that he was recently driving in an official car, not a marked car, but an official car and a, and a white cop pulled him over. So this does happen. These guys do know it. They're familiar with racism. Um, and I, and I, and I wanted them to tell me exactly what they thought, whatever it was, if these were justified shootings, they would tell me if these were uh, racist shootings by idiot cops, they would tell me. And what they told me was that in the example of the video of Baton, uh, from Baton Rouge and then the one from Minnesota, the horrible ones that got all this started, um, they said in both cases, bad training was the problem. I mean, I couldn't, I was really shocked by what they said because, again, these guys are happy to let fly with me about the truth of racism in America. And even though they are high ranking men, they have suffered these injustices. They said, no, what happened was in both cases, these cops. Uh, jumped over steps and uh, and missed steps that they had been trained to take in such circumstances. And then when they found themselves in over their heads, they felt like they had to shoot their way out. And they said, we don't think, none of them, I was talking to them individually, by the way, not, not in a room. I, I was doing this by phone because like I say, I'm in Nashville, not in D.C. Um, but I, I called each of them individually and uh, they, know, they know when something like this happens, they're going to get a call from me because I always want to get the story straight from guys who know what they're doing. And they, the, each of them said, we don't think these guys were racists at all. We can't judge their hearts, but we don't think there's any indication of racism. Uh, it's not like they were shouting the N-word or being bigoted in some overt way. Um, instead, they said, we think that they were poorly trained. There are certain steps cops ought to take, and if they if those steps are not taught again and again, there's not training again and again, you don't have practice again and again, you don't have tests and practice rounds and things like that again and again and again, uh, these steps can be missed, these steps can be forgotten, and when that happens in a, in a, in a pullover, a, a, a stop a situation where you're stopping someone on the side of the road, it can get ugly. And they think that's what happened. They think both uh, the two cops in Minnesota, uh, the, maybe I got that backwards, the two cops in Baton Rouge and, and the one cop up in uh, Minnesota, they said that these guys uh, simply misbehaved, not in a racist sense as far as they can tell, but in that they did not uh, due procedure. They were not conducting themselves according to procedure. And as a result, they got themselves into a situation where they had to shoot themselves out of. Uh, and what the, the word they all used without any prompting from me was these cops got panicked 
And that's what caused the problem. So I am not in any way saying that we don't have a lot to deal with in this country about race. That's why I started the way that I did in this podcast. But I do think it's important. It's a good lesson of leadership for all of us to train our people well. It's also important. I know we have a lot. I have a lot of people in law enforcement listening to this podcast. and I'm so grateful for you and we're praying for you. But I also want to say that these uh, really all of them are experts called out to consult high ranking people in D.C., um, they they all said this was a matter of pitiful training um, because these cops did not go according to procedure, got in over their heads, and that's why these shootings occurred. So do we have something to do with racism, some things to deal with in racism in our country? Absolutely, that's obvious. But part of what might be going on in some of these situations is not a bunch of cops running around who are closet KKK guys, as much as I'm always open to that, that possibility that you've got racist, serious, hardcore racists in every profession. Um, but, but, the, but the opinion of the guys who advise me is that these guys just weren't trained well. And they explained to me, by the way, that commanders in the, in the police in D.C., for example, have to fight for training time. They've got tight budgets. They've got, they're understaffed. And so their guys always have to be in the field. They're guys and their ladies. I don't mean to make that uh, in any way you know, exclusionary. Uh, but their officers, male and female, um, have to be in the field all the time. So training suffers. And then this is what happens. It's just a thought. It's something we ought to keep in mind. And for those of you who are in influence in law enforcement, it's something that um, you probably already know, but I'm, but I'm happy to help reinforce it. I want to close with this thought. My business mentor in Washington, D.C. is a black woman. Uh, her name, first name's Linda. I won't tell you her last name, obviously, on this podcast. But she went for a jog not long ago along the beautiful running and walking paths that, that weave all through the Washington, D.C. area. She was in the north side of the city. She ran out a little bit towards the west. And she was running alone, which she probably shouldn't have done. And I told her that. But uh, she came across a KKK meeting. Now, this is within a few miles of the mall uh, to the northwest, and she had to run for her life back to her car uh, to get in her car. Now, I want you to understand, this is a, this is a h- black woman, highly respected businesswoman. I realize that doesn't matter. I'm just saying um, she's running near her upscale neighborhood in the north part of D.C. She can't be but 10 miles maybe from the mall uh, in D.C., and there's a Klan rally going on. We do have a problem. We do have a crisis. We do have to deal with it. I think the vast majority of Americans are not racist and want to see the founding vision fulfilled. But I do think we have things to deal with. And I will have to say that we're either part of the problem or, or we're the part of the solution. If we're tolerating racist jokes, if we're putting up with bigotry, if we're participating in cultural mores that are ungodly, then we're part of the problem. We can make a difference. We can change this in our generation. Let's remember the example of Jesus and let's also get the job done and make the difference that we can make. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on Fox and CNN. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and The Miracle of the Kurds. His new book is Ask the Question, Why We Must Demand Religious Clarity from Our Presidential Candidates, available on Amazon. Learn more about Stephen at stephenmansfield.tv. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is directed by Isaac Darnold, who also wrote, produced, and performed the podcast theme song. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production.